Dear brothers and sisters, we are just a week to Easter. And, and church tradition recognizes this Sunday as Palm Sunday. And, and for those who don't know about Palm Sunday, it doesn't mean that everyone goes to tropical Florida for spring break. The, the Sunday before Easter is called Palm Sunday, as recorded in, in the, all the four Gospels, is because Jesus entered the Jerusalem riding on a donkey on the Sunday right before he was crucified. As Jesus was entering the city of Jerusalem, a very large crowd lined up along both sides of the road to welcome him. And in, it was the gospel according to John that specified palm branches. And it says, They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And because of this, church has traditionally used palm tree leaves, like these, like those in your hand, uh, to commemorate this historical moment of Jesus making his triumphal entry to Jerusalem. Well, the text that today's sermon is based on is actually not about Jesus entering Jerusalem. Instead, it's based on the parable of the evil tenants. And this parable was told by Jesus right after he made his triumphal entry to Jerusalem. And it's only a few days before his crucifixion. Therefore, it is if we are trying to understand this parable, we need to first understand what circumstance compelled Jesus to tell this parable. What has happened after his triumphal entry to Jerusalem that led him to tell this very tragic parable? And just a week before Passover, Jesus, riding on a donkey, had entered Jerusalem to attend this annual festival. But because of his popularity, there were many, many people following him. From the action of these people, they seem to have already seen Jesus as the Messiah. The crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut palm branches. Actually, not just leaves, they cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road for Jesus' donkey to walk, to walk over. And this spreading of cloaks and, and palm branches on the road was a protocol to receive a king. And the crowd also, also shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is the king of Israel! Hosanna, as Werner also mentioned earlier, Hosanna is a liturgical word in Hebrew meaning save, meaning help or even rescue. And this actually comes from Psalm 118, verse 25. It is very obvious that the crowd hoped and anticipated that this Messiah will act like Moses in the Exodus, that he will deliver the crowd, the people of Israel, from oppression. But this time, it's oppression from the Roman regime. Also, we need to pay special attention that it is very near Passover, which is the most politically sensitive time in a year in the Palestine. 
It is because Passover celebrates that God, Yahweh, overcame the power of Egypt's Pharaoh and led the Israelites out of Pharaoh's regime. As a result, the sentiment of revolt, of uprising, was very intense, the most intense during Passover. And then Jesus came into Jerusalem in this most politically sensitive time with an image that undeniably resembling the messianic image foretold by the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 9, the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, the daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous, victorious. Actually, victorious, this word here, uh, it actually means salvation or precisely Hosanna. And lowly and riding on a donkey, on a coach, the fall of a donkey. Now the crowd saw Jesus entering Jerusalem just before Passover, bearing the exact image, the messianic image described by prophet Zechariah. They would say, it must be you. The Messiah that we have been waiting for has arrived. He has arrived to lead us overturn the Romans. The new Exodus has come. <laughs> Independence Day is near. Well, the crowd was only partially correct. They were right that Jesus was the Messiah who came to offer them help or rescue or precisely Hosanna. But they were too quick to impose their perception or assumption on this Messiah. What they have missed is the meaning of Jesus riding on a donkey. In the ancient world, there were occasions for rulers or kings to ride on a donkey. But whenever donkey was used instead of a horse, it will signify non-military purpose. It is because, although some donkeys can run as fast as horses, most donkeys are inclined to be more laid back, and, and they move in a much slower speed. Donkey, they, 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 they are okay to not living up to their potential. Therefore, when Jesus the Messiah came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, it signified a non-military form of rescue a non-violent form of Hosanna. But when people are too fixated on their perception, then, then they, they would unfortunately miss the real message of God. It happened to the Jews in Jesus' time. It also happens to us in our days. Now when Jesus entered Jerusalem, it was approaching the evening, so it's time to take rest. Then on the next day, the crowd were waiting for Jesus and wondering what Jesus would lead them to do. They probably assumed that Jesus would lead them to occupy some Roman landmarks, or even to assault some, some Roman facilities. Well, they were once again partially correct. Jesus did, indeed, take them to a landmark and to challenge the authorities. But it wasn't a Roman landmark, nor challenging the Roman authorities. Jesus led the crowd to a Jewish landmark, the Jerusalem temple, and challenged the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. As recorded in the Gospel of Luke, it says, When Jesus entered the temple courts, 
he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. But we have to pay attention that this incident of clearing of temple could be different to the one I talked about last week as recorded in John's Gospel. Although it's subject to debate, John's version of clearing of temple could have happened at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, while the one in the, uh, by the synoptics, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, could have happened towards the end of Jesus' ministry, like the one here. Well, last week you have seen how large the temple court is, or, or, or the court of Gentile is. But because also there was a large crowd following Jesus on that day, after his triumphal entry, all the activities, they actually occupied most of the court of Gentile, the outer court on that day. So all the activities, the business activities of the temple court, or worse, the entire temple even, could have been haunted as long as for a couple of hours. Even the morning burnt offering could have been disrupted on that day. And by clearing and disrupting the temple businesses, Jesus had made the Jewish authorities, his enemies. And Jesus, on the other hand, wanted to show that he, being the Messiah sent from God, has come to rescue them from their spiritual depravity instead of from Roman oppression. However, the Jewish authorities were so offended by his actions, so the Jewish authorities have then made up their mind and determined to kill Jesus and to completely crack down his movement. The scripture described what happened at the Sanhedrin, the highest authority for municipal matters in Jerusalem, and it says, But the chief priest, the teacher of the laws, which are the scribes, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, Jesus. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Now you can see how serious a matter it has become. All three groups of top-level leaders of the Sanhedrin agree that Jesus must die. However, they were unable to execute an order to kill just yet because Jesus was too popular. He was a very popular figure and followed by too many people. Killing him while he was so popular could have given rise to a public outrage, which was the last thing they wanted to see, especially as Passover is near. So in order to kill Jesus without causing any public unrest, the authority must first destroy Jesus' influence. Therefore, the Sanhedrin decided to have a combat with Jesus in order to ruin his credibility and thus eliminate the crowd's endorsement for Jesus. The combat is, of course, not of physical nature, but of intellectual one. When it began, the, the first round, the representatives of the Sanhedrin issued a direct challenge against Jesus' authority. They said to Jesus, Tell us by what authority you, were, you are doing these things. Who gave you this authority? Well, these things likely refer to Jesus clearing the temple. People claim that Jesus was the Messiah. So did Jesus 
clear the temple under the authority of God, Yahweh? Well, this question was very tricky and it was for sure a wicked trap. It seems that however Jesus answered would still get him into trouble. If he said his authority did not come from God, Yahweh, then he would have committed the crime of unlawful assembly in which the Romans were very intolerant about. And also he would have committed himself the sin of throwing God's holy temple into chaos. If, on the other hand, Jesus said his authority did come from God, Yahweh, then it's even worse. Because the Jewish authorities could stone him right at the spot for the sin of blasphemy. How would God, Yahweh, mess up with his own dwelling? So in the first round, the Jewish leaders had issued a very ruthless attack against Jesus. Then how did Jesus respond? Jesus, however, did not say where his authority came from directly. Rather, Luke told us that Jesus responded them with a parable. And in this parable, Jesus unambiguously pointed out who actually sent him. And among the many parables of Jesus, this parable is the one that addresses the history of God's salvation plan in the clearest manner. This parable is commonly known as the parable of the tenants, but I like to add the, the description evil to the tenants. So now I hope that you understand the context, why Jesus said this parable. Are we on the same page? Okay, right? Okay, so let's listen to this parable. Let's see how Jesus responds to the first round of the attack from the Sanhedrin. And this parable is recorded in Luke chapter 29 to 19. And I'm going to have Rachel to read this parable for us. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to the others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone that builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Thank you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that your spirit 
inspire Luke to accurately record all these words and this precious parable of Jesus. And may your spirit today lead us to learn and to live into the, the reality of this parable, the salvation good news that this parable brings forth to us as we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. In the beginning of this parable, it says, a man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. In the ancient Middle East, this scenario was very common. The rich people normally owned properties such as farmlands far away from their home. They did not live in their investment properties. And because transportation system back then was very undeveloped, communication was very difficult to establish or to maintain. So in this parable, the scenario was very easily grasped by the, the ancient readers. But this property that Jesus referred to was not a regular farmland, but a vineyard. Most Jews back then would know that vineyard carries special spiritual meaning. In the Old Testament, although there were not too many parables, there is one that most Jews were very familiar with. It is the one recorded in Isaiah 5, which is also known as the parable of the vineyard, or the song of the vineyard. In Isaiah 5, the parable speaks of the owner, which symbolizes Yahweh, and the owner condemning the vineyard, which symbolizes Israel, for yielding bad fruits. So after warning them many times, but they still failed to repent, God said, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have already done for it? At the end, God decided to forsake this unrepentant vineyard. Let it be destroyed and became, became a wasteland. Isaiah 5 is a, is a scene of desolation. And when Jesus told his parable, he mentioned vineyard and owner and fruits. The Jews back then would automatically connect Jesus' parable to Isaiah's and would understand what Jesus was about to say was talking about the relationship between God, Yahweh, and his people, Israel. But what is different to Isaiah 5 is that Jesus' parable has many more characters. First, in the first scene of the parable, a group of new characters appear as the tenants. It says here farmers, but we know they, are, they don't own the land. They are tenants. In the ancient times, the tenants had to pay a, the owner a good portion of their harvest as rent payment. And almost always the case. The owner was very powerful persons. And thus, the tenants would almost never dare to, to deny or even delay payment. It won't happen. It's impossible. But in this parable, the owner's vineyard was leased to a group of ruthless outlaws. So when it came to payment time, the owner sent his servants to the vineyard to collect lease payment from the tenants. This group of tenants were the worst nightmare for any property owner. Not only they refused to make payment, they even beat up the owner's servants. The vineyard owner sent a total of three servants to collect the payment, but the fate of the servants were progressively worse. The first 
servant was beaten up and sent away empty-handed. The second servant was not only just beaten up, but also treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. Then, the third servant. I, I don't know what he is thinking on the way to collect the rent after seeing the, you know, what the first two being ended up being. I mean, would you go if you were the first servant? Well, nevertheless, he went with a loyal spirit. Unfortunately, the consequence of his loyalty was a disaster. The servants not only just beaten up by the evil tenants. The word used here in NIV was wounded. But in fact, the word for the original Greek is traumatized. This first servant was traumatized and then got thrown out of the vineyard. The same word for traumatized here was also used by Jesus, also in Luke, in another of his parables, the Good Samaritan, when he was referring to the wounds of the man who got attacked by the robbers. And that man, because of his wounds or his traumas, was mistaken as a corpse by the priest. So now you can get a sense how traumatized this first servant is. And scene one ends here. The evil tenants ruthlessly took over the land of the owner. The owner, not only that he was unable to collect the rent which he rightly deserved, he also ended up with three badly injured servants. And at this point of the parable, we need to ask, what does it want to tell us so far? I mentioned earlier, that amongst the many parables of Jesus, this parable addresses the history of God's salvation plan in the clearest manner. Therefore, the vineyard owner here apparently symbolizes God, Yahweh, and the tenant symbolizes his chosen people, Israel. God chose Israel, led them to the promised land so that they would bear fruits for him. In the parable, God being the land owner planted a vineyard. Matthew and Mark gave us even more details on how this gracious owner planted the vineyard. They said, it's in Matthew here, and he said, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place, moved back to his home. What the parable wants to say is that God, as the landowner, had provided the tenants everything they need to succeed in growing fruits. As long as they remain dedicated to their duty, they will be able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. But unfortunately, these tenants, they are not content with being just the tenants. They have some hidden agenda here. Well, the sad part is that not only the ancient Israelites were not content with being just tenants. Maybe we share their agenda to a certain degree too. We all have struggles to be just tenants or, or stewards. We have a tendency to want to be the master. We all call Jesus as our Lord, but we don't always necessarily live under his lordship. We have tendency to want to be in charge, to make our own call, and to avoid accountability. Maybe more often than not, that we prefer my will be done than your will be done. 
with this kind of attitude towards life, are we living as if we are tenants or as if we are the owners? Would we in, in, intentionally stay dedicated to the duty entrusted to us by the real owner? Would we? In the parable, the owner sent a few of his servants to collect rent payment. These servants apparently allegorized the prophets who had proclaimed God's word to Israelites generations after generations. And at the end of Second Chronicles, it gave a conclusion to this part of salvation history. It says, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's people, mocked God's messenger, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. Sounds like a parable, doesn't it? In the parable, the calamity of the servants is a reflection on this part of the salvation history. The increasing violence of the tenants represents the increasing hardening of hearts of the Israelites and the worsening of their spiritual condition. So, scene 2 of the parable follows right after the end of scene 1. Scene 2 is a very short passage, and it's all about the reaction of the landowner. The passage records a painful, a very painful monologue of the owner, and he says, What shall I do? The owner says to himself, What shall I do? In light of these tenants who returned kindness with hostility, harmed and humiliated the servant sent by the owner, the owner kept asking himself, what shall I do? At this point, we have to imagine how Jesus' audience would think upon hearing what the owner just said they would probably think like, why? Why do you need to think, what shall you do? This is totally unnecessary. For sure, you must send in a heavily armed company of trained men to storm the vineyard, traumatize the violent tenants, arrest them, and bring them to justice. Then you find yourself a better and more loyal tenant. That's what you should do. That's what everybody in Palestine would do in Jesus' time. And this reaction was built upon the cultural value of honor and shame. In the Middle Eastern culture, honor and shame is the predominant driving value of the society. They value honor and shame much more than we Chinese do. Middle Eastern people in Jesus' time were to avoid shame at any cost. Avoiding shame is the most important single factor in decision-making. In this parable, the tenants repeatedly harm and humiliate the servants of the owner. This is in fact a direct insult to the owner himself. So being bounded by the cultural value of honor and shame, the owner was implied to have been very angry and he had no choice. In order to avoid shame, the owner must return an eye for an eye. He must apply more violence onto the tenants 
and traumatize them even more. In the ancient Middle East, it says that some owners even employed professional assassins to deal with this kind of troublesome tenants. So if you're tenants, make sure you pay the rent. But the owner actually asked himself, what shall I do? Why do you keep asking, owner? Don't you already know? If you take revenge, get someone to beat up the tenants and throw them out, then you can save yourself from being shamed. If you don't take revenge, on the other hand, then you are bearing the shame by yourself. The whole village will never see you in the same way. You would have humiliated yourself even worse than what the tenant did to you. Come on, owner. You have all the resources you need to take revenge and get rid of these evil tenants. What are you waiting for? An ordinary owner would not need to consider anymore. But this owner is no ordinary owner. He kept asking himself in a very painful manner, What shall I do? You can probably sense a very painful pause after this question. What shall I do? Is further violence the only answer? Would anger dictate the nature of his response? At the end, to the amazement of everyone, the owner made a shocking decision. I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Now, you can understand how stunned Jesus' audience would be. Come on, owner. This is outrageous stupidity. This is stupid. You really think that they would respect your son? What is your son? Is your son a street fighter or something? And the owner says, I will send my son, whom I love, perhaps they will respect him. The term, my son, whom I love, implies that it is the owner's only son. And we need to understand that there is another important implication in this statement. This statement implies that if these evil tenants repent, and respect the son of the owner, the owner is willing to forgive all they had done to their servants, to his servants. And more importantly, the owner is ready to allow them to continue to work in the vineyard. That's gracious. So under extreme anger, the owner did not allow anger to dictate his decision. He reprocessed his anger into grace. His patience, his kindness are now leading him into a very vulnerable situation. Even up to this point, the owner still desires to restore the wicked tenant, even that it might cost him the life of his only beloved son. And scene two ends here. Following this shocking decision of the owner, scene three begins. And sadly, scene three is also the most bloody 
and violent scheme of all. The beloved son of the owner, or the beloved son of the father, the only son of the father, being so obedient to the will of the father, is now approaching the hostile and life-threatening dinya. The scripture goes on and says, But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. Remember what the owner said? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw the owner's son, they, they went. This is the heir. Let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So at the end, Jesus told the ending of this parable. So, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Following the murder of the son of the vineyard owner, scene three comes to an end. Jesus gave us the motive of the, of the tenants in murdering the owner's son, which is to take over the inheritance. They want to take over the vineyard. But everyone listening to Jesus would have understood that this is impossible to happen. The law, any law, the Jewish law, our law, any law, no law would allow murderers to inherit the murderer's property. There's no way. Otherwise, the law would be encouraging homicides. So this is impossible. The parable of Jesus wants to indicate that the tenants were not only evil, they were also foolish. Their evilness and their foolishness had now driven them into a state beyond redemption. Jesus gave the conclusion of the parable about how the owner would eventually do to the tenants after they murdered his son. The parable goes on. He will come, the owner will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. In rejecting the son of the owner, the tenants were in effect rejecting the grace and mercy of the owner. In other words, they had insisted to go against the owner till the end. After his grace and mercy being rejected, the owner had no other choice but to lay upon the tenants this devastating judgment. The tenants now have lost their last chance to repent. Now let's go back to the setting that Jesus was telling this parable. Jesus want, wanted to address to the Jewish leaders who were attempting to kill him. The Jewish leaders had already acted as if they were the vineyard owner to a point that even the Messiah must be validated by their approval. They challenged Jesus' source of authority. Then Jesus, through this parable, told them that he was sent by God, the Father, to restore them. But now they wanted to kill him. And thought that they, they could then take over the authority and ownership. Jesus in this parable was essentially saying, Wake up! Don't be foolish and naive. You won't get what you want by killing the son. Brothers and sisters, the owner of the vineyard so desired to restore the tenants, even that it would cost him the life of his only beloved son. And this is not just a story. 
This is what actually happened to God in reality, in relation with us. Brothers and sisters, you see, at just the right time, when we were all powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, for the wicked, for us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were all sinners, while we were all going against Him, Christ died for us. In the monologue of the owner, he said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. This is the core of our salvation, of our Hosanna. Next week will be Good Friday and Easter. If not for the owner to decide that he will send his son whom he loves, after he considers what shall he do, there would not be salvation Hosanna to us. There would not be any Easter for us to celebrate. So, my dear brothers and sisters, may we give thanks to God as we reflect on the meaning of Good Friday and Easter in the, next, in the coming week. We have this Good Friday service, on, on, of course on Friday, at 11 o'clock in the morning. Come, reflect on what God has done after He looked at us and He considered what shall He do. And then He sent His Son. Also, may we follow the footsteps of our Lord. So when we have struggles or anger towards our brothers and sisters or even other people, we would ask ourselves the same question. What shall I do? And then, maybe in God's mercy and grace, we will be able to reprocess our anger, our resentment into grace and kindness. Let us all pray together. Father God, we give thanks to you. For while we were all sinners, while we were going against you, you sent your only Son, Jesus, to die for our sins. It is your grace and love that we can be called your children. So, Father, help us to bear in mind that we have always wanted to restore, that you have always wanted to restore us sinners and to help sinners to repent. Help us to be a living testimony of your gospel. Give us courage so that for your glory's sake, we will not fear even going into a hostile vineyard. For your will is good and for your name is great. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.